Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Recently, a movie was in theaters depicting the horrific shooting at a church in Charleston, South Carolina four years ago. Chris Singleton's mother lost her life along with eight others in the incident. I talked with him about his response and the forgiveness extended toward the shooter. Here's some of his comments ahead. Next, from Christ Forgiveness Ministries in Toronto, you'll be hearing from David Lynn. He has shared the gospel on the streets of the city, but when he went into a neighborhood known for its LGBTQ population, he was arrested. Then from the Susan B. Anthony list, some commentary from Illinois resident Jill Stanick, whose home state recently passed sweeping new legislation allowing abortion during the entire pregnancy, a law that eliminates restrictions on the procedure. And on this edition of The Intersection, find out about the young woman engaged to Dietrich Bonhoeffer at the time of his death. Her name is Maria, and Amanda Barrett has written a book that enables the reader to get to know her and explores the impact she had on Bonhoeffer. Then, Shelby Abbott works with college students with the Ministry of Crew and brings some insight into challenges that young adults are facing and how they can deal with the stresses of college life. Finally, she lost her husband and two children in a tragic accident 15 years ago. Laura Jones has been faithfully sharing a message of hope for over a decade. Learn more about her story and what God has done in her life coming up. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Chris Singleton is a former professional baseball player and motivational speaker whose mother lost her life in the Charleston church shooting in 2015. In a recent conversation with me, he talked about his own response to her death and how his faith sustained him and inspired the message he now shares. We talked prior to the showing of the documentary Emmanuel, the untold story of the victims and survivors of the Charleston church shooting in theaters recently. Here now is Chris Singleton. I have a little brother and little sister who was 12 and 15 at the time. So immediately my thoughts went to, you know, how I'm going to explain that to them and how can I put that into words for my brother and sister and what are we going to do going forward? So those were my initial thoughts, um, just making sure that my, my family was going to be all right. What are some of the emotions that you had to deal with, not only in the immediate aftermath of the, the shooting, but also in the days that followed? Yeah. Um, obviously immediately, um, there's, there's, so much going on in your head you don't even have time to grieve I I feel like when something like that immediately happens um and I think me personally I kind of you know put my feelings to the side because I truly wanted to be strong and and look the part for my brother and sister so there was a period in time where I didn't even you know grieve too well because I was putting on a facade of being all right all the time so my family members um could look to me for strength well, let's talk about your your faith story because I believe that this plays such a large part in your response to what occurred there in the death of your mom at Mother Emanuel. So tell me just a bit about your own Christian faith journey. I know that if people have read some of the, the various publications, they know about your strong faith. Tell me how that really impacted your your viewpoint moving forward after what occurred that night. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm like a lot of people. Um, you know, I was raised in the church. My parents went to church. My grandparents went to church. So I was kind of 
going to church no matter what. I liked it or not. So I was there. Um, so I, I never really had a truly a personal relationship um, with the Lord until my mother was killed. And that's when I put all my faith and all of my strength and, and I asked God, you know, get me through this. And I promise you, um, I'm going to continue to fight every single day um, to make believers out of the people around me and uh, just keep my, my putting my faith into you. And, and honestly, God gave me the strength that I needed, and my faith has just been on fire ever since then. So tell me about the trajectory of your life as you really attempt to spread this message. Yeah, um, with over the last couple of years, I've been able to speak to probably around 50 schools, um, you know, thousands and thousands of students. And, and really my message is loving one another, um, not based on race, religion, or skin color, but like Dr. King said, by the content of someone's character. Um, so I, I spread this message, I spread this love, and I also teach um, kids and young people in general how we're going to get through our toughest times, how we're going to get through the unthinkable adversity that we're going to face in our lives. Because, you know, we, we're taught about um, geometry, we're taught about history, but I feel like in a sense we're never taught about how to get through the toughest times in our life. And I feel like if, if we were taught that, then we won't turn to the drugs or the alcohol or whatever it may be um, and so that's what it really what I try to teach the young people is how I got through my toughest times, um, leaning on the Lord, and how I think that everybody should love one another. And tell me about how your story is integrated into the film. Yeah, I talk. I don't want to give too much away about sure. the, the the documentary, but there's there's definitely a, a moment in time where I talk about how, you know, f- for me, I was being prepared for that moment. And I don't want to give everything away, but I think that God was literally preparing me um, for the future battles that I was facing in my life, and that being my mother being taken away from me. And so I'm going to be sharing some stories of, of that. And, uh, yeah, that's that's basically what I want to say without giving too much away. Sure. Chris Singleton here on The Intersection. You can find out more information through the movie's website. It's Emmanuel, E-M-A-N-U-E-L, movie.com. Next up on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's David Lynn of Christ Forgiveness Ministries based in Toronto. He discussed the type of ministry in which he's involved and related information about one event in which he was arrested doing street ministry in an area that is known for its LGBTQ population. From that recent conversation, this is David Lynn. Basically, we started out with a prayer, and uh, we just had a small group, and it was about a team of five or six of us. We just prayed, and, and we ended up with the Lord's Prayer. And I noticed when I started praying, in our own little corner, not, not publicly, not on a microphone, uh, a group started to come around with signs. And, uh, and you know, initially I, I didn't fully know what was going on, but then I started to clue in and, you know, that maybe some people don't want, like us. I, I, I really don't know exactly. But then uh, there was a homeless man who... We wanted us to pray for him. We prayed for him right after that, and we allowed him to sing a song. And, and then while he was doing that, I, I noticed that there was more people gathering around. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, I just, we just do what we normally do. We just started to preach the gospel, the love of God. And, and that, uh, you know, and, and that was very uh, clearly spoken, is that, that God loves you, God cares for you. And uh, we repeated that over and over, and... Um, it, it seems as though when I started to share that God loves you, they started to, I guess, get loud and 
put their signs and put the flag in front of me and um you know impede my my movement and start to assault me and you know so that's kind of the the progression of the story and then and i guess somewhere along the line i, I mean i kept trying to move away from the people that were trying to impede my steps and assault me and uh, no matter where I went, they followed me, and uh, eventually the police officer came, and um, I guess he was telling me that, you know, I got to stop what I'm doing, and even though we're protected under under our Constitution or similar to your, the First Amendment in the United States, um, I guess he just he felt that I I was the problem, and. Um, you know, a little dialogue went on. Um, he asked me to turn off my amplifier, which in Toronto we are allowed to do within reasonable limits. Um, you know, but again, he was just, I guess, trying to, I guess, bully me off the corner. So I ended up complying, turning off the amplifier and just using my voice alone and uh, um, went to go preach. And uh, long story short, got surrounded by about six police officers they arrested me spent the night in jail um uh, and then given bail conditions which i feel are unjust um and uh and i've been released on bail and pending trial on july 10th even by standing on a street corner and saying god loves you that is being perceived as being hate speech and that it is denigrating and or or, and or offensive to the gay community. In fact, you were interacting with people one-on-one -on -one and just really pleading with people to hear you, that you just wanted to share that God loved you and you wanted to you wanted them to listen to you and to be tolerant of your beliefs. Comment on that, if you would. Here's the thing. You know, uh, what's going on in Canada and the United States is that you can— you can uh, you can be anything you want to accept a Christian, and 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 you know the the LGBT community seems as though they're given special and favorable treatment from any other community. Uh, you know, right now they they call it Pride Month in the Pride uh, in the month of June, and everywhere you go, every store, every bank, you see rainbow flags everywhere. Now. Hey, I mean, you know, it's a free country. Everybody has the right to do that. But, you know, technically, I can make the argument that they're, they're, they're forcing that or pushing that down everybody's throats. But they're not going to do that for Christians. They're not going to put a cross on their bank. They're not going to put a cross on every store. And I think they should if they're, if they're, if they're espousing a, an ideology of uh, equality, but they won't because— I think that what I believe what's happening in our generation is that whatever it is, whatever spirit that is, whatever philosophy it is, really despises Christianity and feels that Christianity ought to be forced out of the mainstream society and even silenced. But, but any other opinion should be embraced. And so this is what's going on, and I think that Christians all around the world need to, need to come together and, and really not only pray, but but exercise their freedoms now before it's too late, because this agenda, or whatever this is, the spirit behind this seems to want to remove the voice of Christ in the culture. David Lynn here on The Intersection. The ministry website is ChristForgiveness.com. You can also find Christ Forgiveness Ministries on YouTube. 
Next on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Jill Stanick, a former nurse who serves as national campaign chair for the pro-life organization Susan B. Anthony List. She discussed the new abortion bill in the state of Illinois, allowing abortion during an entire pregnancy. Here now from that conversation is Jill Stanick. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, then the abortion decision will be handed over to all 50 states. And when Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed last year, the other side could count noses, too, and saw that there was now a five to four conservative majority on the Supreme Court. And so they hatched a plan to encourage uh, radically pro-abortion states, of which there are 20 that we've identified, um, to initiate plans that would make abortion legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy, basically for whatever reason up to and including infanticide, you know, um, overturning protections for abortion survivors. So they started that, as you said, in um, New York and passed, and people were just horrified when, um, you know, people behind the governor applauded and he lit up um, the, the World Trade Center with pink lights to celebrate and then moved on to Virginia But in Virginia, the delegate that introduced it was caught on videotape in a a hearing saying that, yeah, her bill would allow abortion on demand, even while a mom was in labor and dilating, which horrified people anew. And then Governor Northam, a pediatric neurologist, in attempting to defend her, exactly described what I experienced at Christ Hospital, where you abort these babies, and if they survive, then they're kept comfortable, and while the parents, the mom, and the doctor decide whether to resuscitate that baby or not, so they're deciding whether to allow infanticide. So when that happened, then the pro-life states that you identified and many others reacted to those um, wild abortion bills and started passing our own uh, pro-life bills that were pretty strict. And uh, that gave then the other side momentum again to renew their efforts to pass the bills, which brings us um, the, the radical pro-abortion bills, which brings us to the state of Illinois. And that's what happened. They backed away after Virginia because and New York because there was so much heat, un- unexpected heat. But then they renewed their gumption after we started passing all these laws. Uh, and um, now that's what they, they just passed, um, one, a radical law in Massachusetts and New York, uh, Vermont, and working on one in uh, Rhode Island. I mean, I look at the list of the provisions of this law. All of these are are different components that pro-lifers have been fighting for for years and years in their various states. Things like uh, parental notification, that provision of Illinois law is now in danger. You're talking about conscience protection. You're talking about clinic safety. I mean, this is a, a laundry list, and the legislature in one fall swoop has basically decided to nullify all of it. Right. Um, what is happening is all the states around Illinois are increasingly pro-life. And so one abortion group said that if Illinois passed this Reproductive Health Act, they would become the abortion care oasis of the Midwest. And in fact, when Governor Pritzker signed the bill on Wednesday, he bragged that this new law would make Illinois the most progressive in the nation on abortion. And it has. 
as you uh, said, you made some of the points that um, it repeals protections for abortion survivors. It repeals criminal penalties for abortion. It repeals all abortion clinic regulations. It repeals legal protections for hospitals and healthcare professionals from being forced to participate in abortion. Get this, Bob. It stops coroners from investigating maternal deaths due to abortion, so we'll never know now. Mm. You know how how vast uh, mortality is in Illinois due to this increase in abortions, and it allows abortions throughout all nine months of pregnancy, up to the moment of birth, for any reason, by a non-doctor in a clinic that's not inspected and doesn't have to report injuries. So. Um, if that is what Governor Pritzker was hoping for, to have the craziest uh, pro-abortion law in the land, well, he got it. Jill Stanek here on The Intersection. Learn more through sba-list.org. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection podcast. You can also find the podcast in that Media Center. It's also available via subscription through iTunes. It is free. Plus, through the Meeting House homepage, you can get access to two blogs. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content, including recently added content from the 2019 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Anaheim, California. Content from the Meeting House program can also be found through the Faith Radio app. Learn more about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet through the website faithradio.org. Content from the Meeting House can also be found through a number of other apps. Learn more when you go to meetinghouseonline.info. Next on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Amanda Barrett. She is the author of the book My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Lost Love. It focuses on Maria von Wiedemeyer, her life and her impact on Bonhoeffer, to whom she was engaged at the time of his death. Here now from that conversation is Amanda Barrett. I love talking about Maria because for a very long time she was a hidden figure in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life whom a lot of people knew very little about. And it wasn't until Love Letters from Cell 92, published in the 90s, that the story of her relationship was told for the first time. After Maria's death, her sister Ruth Alice published the correspondence that she and Dietrich had exchanged. So Maria was the third of seven children from an upper-class family in Pomerania, Prussia, and she came from this background of very people who were also standing strong on their convictions and going contrary to the culture. Her father was very anti-Nazi, and he actually refused to hang a swastika on his property, which was very something that, so he was very much going against the government. And she had relatives, her cousin and uncle, Henning von Treskow and Fabian von Schlabendorf, who were key players in the conspiracy and very much involved in the plots against Hitler. And when Dietrich met Maria in the summer of 1942 at the home of Maria's grandmother, Maria was 18 and Dietrich was 36, so there was this age difference between them, this obstacle right away, but they spent this evening together getting to know each other, and there was this connection between them, a friendship between them, even attraction that they both thought about after they'd went their separate ways. And 
Maria was such an incredible woman. It was so amazing to be able to study her life because she was very independent and free-thinking. She wanted to study mathematics at a time when a German woman's highest calling was to marry and have a large family for the furtherance of the Reich. And she loved, she loved those around her very fiercely and was very close to her father and her brother, who both were killed within months of each other just shortly after she met Dietrich. And she was a woman of deep faith and conviction who lived out what the things that Dietrich wrote about. She didn't write sermons and books like he did, but she lived those out on a daily basis. And they actually never married because Dietrich was arrested and taken to Tegel Prison just a couple of months after their engagement. So they, they dreamed about their wedding, they planned about their wedding in the when he was in prison, but that actually never came to be because he was executed um, right a few mere weeks before the war ended. What attracted your attention to this story? So I first discovered Dietrich Bonhoeffer through Eric Metaxas's book, Seven Men and the Secret of Their Greatness, which kind of unpacks the lives of these seven great men. And I was really fascinated by Dietrich's story, the story of this German pastor and theologian who stood boldly against the regime. And a few months later, I came across a quote from Love Letters from Cell 92, which is the book I was talking about that contains mm-hmm. their correspondence during their relationship. And as I was reading that and looking through that, this question just rose to the surface. And that question was, what kind of a woman would capture the heart of a man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer? And because, you know, we all revere Dietrich Bonhoeffer and know of him as pastor, martyr, prophet, spy. But this woman knew him as something more. They, she knew him as they shared this love, this relationship, this love together. And as I, time went by, though I was working on other projects, I couldn't stop thinking about this story. And I've heard it said, if you can't find the book you want to read, then write it. And so that's, after a lot of prayer, what I decided to do. What would you say would be the principal or a couple of the principal lessons that people can learn from the lives of Dietrich and Maria? Well, yes, there are so many. I could talk for hours about <laughs> them. And because Bonhoeffer's life, I mean, even I've been studying his life for over three years, and I'm still just discovering these nuggets of truth as I'm reading some of his writings, you know, again and again. And but my favorite is that he believed in this essay that he wrote. Um, right, it's a couple months before he was imprisoned, and it was it asked the question, "Who stands firm?" And his answer was, "Who stands firm is the person whose life is nothing but an answer to God's question and call." And when I heard that, that just deeply uh, impacted me. I thought, "Wow, what if we all got up in the morning every day with the prayer on our lips, Lord, let my life be nothing but an answer to Your question and call?" And that deeply stood out to me. And I believe that Bonhoeffer not only wrote about that, he lived that even during the worst times in his life, when he'd, been, when he'd been taken from Tegel to the underground prison in Berlin, and he was in the basement cells, he, people who knew him there still spoke of the joy and the hope that he was giving to them, even in the midst of those horrible circumstances. And so I believe that his life and legacy has so much truth that we can, as Christians, just take and apply to our lives, not that he was a perfect person, but that he was a human person daily seeking to live out the will of God. Amanda Barrett here on The Intersection. You can find out more by visiting visiting her website, Amanda Barrett, B-A-R-R-A-T-T dot com. Shelby Abbott is next on this edition of the Intersection Podcast. He is with the Ministry of Crew. He's an author and conference speaker. And in our recent conversation, he described challenges faced by students and young adults offering biblical insight and solutions as he explores in the book, Pressure Points, A Guide to Navigating Student Stress. Here now is Shelby Abbott. I'd say that the biggest difference that exists today with college students, which is why I, I wanted to write the book, was the when you throw in the element of social media and technology, 
um, it brings those issues that are universal to the surface in a way that they have really never um, been there before in our in our culture. Uh, thing, so because the internet is streamed right into your pocket, um, and you get real time um, notices of what's going on in the world, all the bad things, not to mention the social media uh, window of being able to see what all of your friends are doing, how they're living their lives, and the fact that people post kind of the polished versions of themselves on social media all the time. There's a lot of fear of missing out, which we call FOMO. And there's also a lot of jealousy, uh, a lot of uh, sadness that arises at a, as a result of seeing, oh, these people are wealthier than I am. They're better looking than I am. They're having more fun than I am. Um, so, yeah, I think the element of technology and social media has really changed the game when it comes to stress and pressure. Tell me just a bit how how you see that this FOMO, this fear of missing out, really affects college students and operates in their lives. Um, it's really one of those things that we, as a maybe older generation, look at and kind of roll our eyes, <laughs> even because of the cute little acronym of FOMO. But it's a very, very real issue. I, I was even talking about it yesterday with uh, a couple of college students here as we were going through um, how they're all right now, the 35 students that I'm leading, they're all living in one house together in four separate apartments uh, separated by guys and girls. And the, the problem that we've been seeing is that they're staying up super, super late. And they're, some of them are having to get up to go to their jobs during the day at like 4.30 in the morning mm. because they work a breakfast shift or something like that. But they're staying up so late because – and one college student admitted this to me yesterday. He said, I'm just – I just can't not hang out with people if I know that people are doing something because I don't want to miss out on the fun. I don't want to miss out on the inside jokes. I don't want to miss out on the fellowship. I'm terrified of what it means to be left out. Um, and so the, the loneliness issue or not feeling like you're on the inside of what's going on with other people, especially people you care about, uh, can be, you know, just paralyzing. It can be really, really terrifying to, to students who just don't want to miss on, out on anything. And coupled with the fact that they're so used to seeing everything that's going on right now in real time um, because of what's on their phones and social media, they're used to being on the inside of things. And so the, the threat of being on the outside is really just one of those things that um, causes a, a great amount of stress and fear. How do you see, practically speaking, that the power of God's Word, that the power of the gospel can really provide some answers to this this experience of the fear of missing out? Yeah, I think when we're secure in our relationship with the Lord, when we understand that God um, was not willing to hold back anything in order to be with us, He was willing to become a person in Jesus and be sacrificed uh, for us because he wanted to be in relationship with us. When we really genuinely understand that in our, in our heart of hearts, we can begin to see that we don't need the approval of other people or, or the acceptance of other people um, because we have already been accepted and loved completely by God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so 
I really want to make sure that, that people understand that. And, and as you mentioned before, this, these are not necessarily only specific things that college students wrestle with. This is, this is a universal thing. Um, many of the things that I address in the book are universal issues that uh, all people wrestle with. There are sections that also talk about what it means to be a college student, so it's definitely targeted at them. But practically speaking, when we open the scriptures and see the lengths that God went to be with us, um, when we own that in our heart of hearts, it's really one of those things that other relationships begin to uh, fade in, in light of the love that God has for us. That, that's not to say that they're not important. Those relationships are very important, but there's a security we can sit in and rest in knowing that God loves us. And so the fear of missing out just, just starts to become uh, less and less of an issue in our lives. Shelby Abbott here on The Intersection. His website is shelbyabbott.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Laura Jones. She lost her husband and two children in a tragic accident 15 years ago. She's been faithfully sharing a message of hope for over a decade. She's written a book entitled Song of a Wounded Heart, Regaining Hope and Trust After Personal Tragedy. The incredible true life story of a woman who lost everything. Laura Jones, here now on the Intersection Podcast. I had fallen asleep in the front seat of the van, expecting to wake up about midnight at home, or at my, my in-law's home. And instead, when I woke up, my world had completely changed. My husband and my son died on the highway, basically instantly after at the conclu- at the impact, and my daughter lived just a few more hours. I I was taken to her, and was able to be with her when she walked into glory. Mm. But the very next morning, just a few hours after that, I was released from the hospital, able to walk on my own. I had a concussion, broken rib, but that's all. It was like God had just chosen for me to live. As later, when I saw the pictures of the van, I knew that I was only alive because God wanted me to be. But boy, I didn't want to be. Mm. I didn't want to be. The journey over these last 15 years has been has been incredibly difficult and incredibly long, but God has been so faithful to me. He started talking to me in the van right after the accident, and and the way he did that was through a song. And that's why my book is titled Song of a Wounded Heart, because he often has spoken to me through songs. It's it's like a second language to me, a way that God can speak when I can't hear him any other way. And he started that in the van. He he started with just a piece of a song that I'd heard before on the radio, but I didn't know it. So I couldn't keep singing it in my mind. It had to come in little sound bites from God. Hmm. And it started with, do not be afraid. Well, that was almost crazy to even consider because I was absolutely terrified trying to absorb everything I was seeing. Um, And then as they began to take me out of the van, the next phrase of that song came and it said, the voice of truth says, this is for Mm. my glory. And I thought, 
okay, you're doing something. We're going to be okay. Everybody's everybody's going to be okay. It's going to be miraculous. But that's not the way it was. And so at the first hospital I was at when the chaplain came and told me that my son and husband had not survived and they did not think my daughter would live through the night, that's when the chorus of that song concluded right then in my in my head. God saying, out of all the voices calling out to me, I will choose to listen and believe the voice of truth. Mm. I clung to that. That song yeah. is the vo- is Voice of Truth by Catherine Yes, Brown. powerful Came song. Out in 2004. Mm-hmm. But um, I just clung to that. Like, God is here, and he said he's going to do something with this, but I don't, for the life of me, understand how or why. Well, a few weeks, maybe. Time is kind of elusive at that point in my journey. But one of my friends said to me, are you going to keep believing in God? And I was stunned because I had been a believer for a long, long time, and I had seen God work. I knew his voice, but this was different. And this I realized it really was at that kind of a crossroads. I could walk away if that's what I wanted to do, or I could stay if that's what I wanted to do. And in an instant, fear just went from the top of my head to the tips of my toes, and I thought, if I walk away, that means I am saying there is no God to help me do this. There's no God that cares, and there's no life after this one. That would mean my children and my husband are just dead. Hmm. There's no hope whatsoever. No, (laughs) I am not leaving my faith. That doesn't mean I didn't get angry and question God and ache and hurt unlike anything I've ever felt before. But I chose to just keep believing. And God stayed faithful. So, mm. so faithful. Laura Jones here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website, Laura, L-O-R-A, Jones, dot O-R-G. Well, we are nearing the conclusion of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Find out more by going to the programming section at faithradio.org or by visiting The Meeting House homepage at meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the podcast. You can also find the podcast in that Media Center. It's also available through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible through the Meeting House homepage. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. There is also a link to video content. Content from the Intersection podcast can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a number of other apps. Learn more when you go to meetinghouseonline.info or when you visit the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.